The scripture takes place in Luke 11. The disciples have asked Jesus, teach us to pray. And he says, when you pray, say, Father in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. The year is 1918. The scene is Paris, France. Along the Champs-Élysées, a stage has been set up. It is the end of World War I, and 50 French soldiers will take the stage, all of them victims of shell shock. All of them have forgotten who they are. So one by one, they climb the stairs, go to the stage, come to the microphone, and say to the assembled crowd, can anyone please tell me who I am? Now, as the story goes, 49 out of the 50 went home with family or friends that day. And that's the good news. But the bad news is that's a question that a lot of us still really haven't got the answer to. Or if we had it answered, we've forgotten. Who am I? Who are you? The answer is you are and I am a beloved child of God. The answer is so significant that in the early church, the first couple centuries, when they had somebody that was kind of falling away from God's way, uh, they didn't call them sinners or backsliders. What they called people drifting away from God, they called them amnesiacs. They had forgotten who they were. Now, you and I may claim to believe that we are. Sons and daughters of God. But do we believe that? Really? Several years ago, Robert Novak wrote about convictions. And he said there are three different kinds of convictions in the world. There are public convictions that we hold. And those are the things that we tell other people we believe. Whether we believe them or not, we we go along with the crowd and say we believe them. Then he said there are private convictions. Those are convictions that deep down we really think we do believe. And then he said there are core convictions, which is the convictions we have that are seen in the way that we live our life, and they display what we really, really do believe. I am aware that when I act out of fear, guilt, anxiety, worry, insecurity, drivenness, I know Deep down in my deepest core, I don't really believe that I am this beloved child of God. And when I see that in others, the fear, the guilt, the anxiety, and the worry, and the actions that flow from it, I know they don't believe it deep down either. Now, this isn't the only way to look at what has happened the past month or so in our city. But when you read about what was going on at City Hall uh, with the non-discrimination ordinance, or you watch it on TV, I think there is one way that says there are two groups of people down there. One of them acted as if they did not have a home and they were trying to secure it. The other group acted as if they had a home that could be taken away from them at any moment. We are never our best selves when we live outside of our identity, when we live in insecurity. You are a beloved child of God. I am a beloved child of God. And that needs to get deep down. Now, I have a theory is about as to why it's really not very deep down in our lives. My theory is this. 
that most of us start with the wrong story of God. That we have the wrong ideas about God. We believe the wrong things about God, and so we can't get there. Richard Rohr, in a video released a few weeks ago, uh, talked about something he called bogus storylines. And he says, we have a tendency in our life to believe things that are bogus. They're not true, but we don't know that, so we keep collecting stuff to add to it to build a case as if it were true. He says, we have the wrong script, and we keep adding to the script. And that can happen. John Claypool, the late John Claypool, uh, said when he was growing up that his, ch- his parents said to him, Johnny, one day you will grow up and be somebody. And he lived out of a false story. The false story, the bogus storyline was, you've got to make yourself somebody because right now you're really not. But one day you will be. And so he spent his life going to school, to graduate school, to seminary, to a doctorate, to churches and larger churches and books. All in the effort to prove who he was. Years of his life wasted trying to become somebody because he missed the true storyline that he already was somebody. We live out of this bogus storyline and we collect and build on the story. James Bryan Smith in a wonderful book called Our Good and Beautiful God calls this a false narrative. That we believe the wrong thing and then we, when we believe the wrong thing, then wrong actions will flow from it. I want to suggest to you that one of the reasons you and I don't deep down experience ourselves as beloved sons and daughters of God is because we believe the wrong stuff about God. We've bought into a false narrative. We got the bogus storyline. And the bogus storyline is this. God is angry. God is a judge. God is a bookkeeper. God is just waiting for us to take one step outside the line so that God can punish us. God is a vengeful God. And when we start with that Storyline. then we add to it and we start to collect evidence and something bad happens to somebody else and we go, oh, see? I mean, remember years ago with Katrina, it was like, well, there are bad people in New Orleans. And, and we build on a bogus storyline about a God just looking for a chance to get even with us and to catch us doing something wrong. And it is no wonder if that's our storyline that we can't get close to God in relationship. Because relationships with God, according to Mark Stibbe, are never driven by whips of fear. They are always drawn by cords of love. But you got the wrong picture. You get the wrong belief. You build the wrong story. And you end up distant from God and from who you are in God. Now, here's the right storyline. Here's the true narrative. This is one you can take to the bank. It is as sure as gravity, if not more so. The storyline is this, that God is a loving Father who cares for you and cares for me deeply. God is a loving Father who loves us even more than our own parents loved us and even more than we love our own children. Now, this does not rob God of God's power. Because God cares does not mean God is weak. I remember a picture I grew up with. Some of you probably remember seeing it too. President John F. Kennedy is in the White House. And his son, John John, is in the Oval Office under his father's desk, playing contentedly while his father is on the phone. He has no idea that his father is the most important man in the free world. All he knows is, that's my father. And I am safe 
in this room and in this place. That is the picture, that is the story of God we were meant to have. It does not rob God of God's great power, but rather lets us know, as the ancient prayer says, God's power is ever directed toward his children's good. That's the storyline, and it is a very old storyline. It goes all the way back, past Jesus into the Old Testament. And the early church believed it so much that there were two kind of main narratives that the early church was built on. The first one was this, that God is our Father who loves us deeply and we are beloved sons and daughters of God. But there was another narrative also in the scripture, which we get and we find it in Paul, that we are sinners, that payment must be made for our sins, and that payment was made and so therefore God acquitted us. Now, at one time, the two were held in tension. They're in tension in Paul. Paul, who talks about our justification by faith, also talks about that we are heirs, not orphans. We are sons and daughters, not slaves. And the early church held them together. Origen, one of the early church fathers in the third century, and he carried a big stick, said this, we must help people move from a master-servant relationship to a father-son relationship with God. But somehow, over the centuries, the two got separated and our belovedness as children of God receded our wickedness and sinful need of redemption rose higher. And we got a storyline, which is not the whole truth. We built a case on it and then we even made it completely false about a God who can't wait for us to mess up, looking for us to mess up, occasionally rewards us if we get something right. Not a picture of a father, a loving father at all. But the true storyline is about a God who is our father, who cannot possibly love you anymore than he already does. There's nothing you can do to make him love you more. There's nothing you can do to make him love you less. You are just loved. Now, as we think about that, I know there'll be some objections. One objection is this. You'll object, well, God is not male. Fair enough. Genesis 1.27 says, male and female, God created them in God's own image. God has the best of the kind of qualities that we associate with both fathers and mothers. They're both there. But you might also object, well, I had a distant father. I had an abusive father. If you call God father, people who have bad father experiences will be drawn away or repelled away from God. Well, the sad truth is it's pretty clear that our picture of God is, in fact, colored by our experiences we had with our earthly fathers. A couple decades ago, Psychology Today did a survey of their readers, and 90% of the readers who identified themselves as atheists also claimed that they had a very bad relationship with their earthly father. Having an abusive and absent father does, in fact, for people make it more difficult to believe in the loving God, our Father. But it is not determinative. It does not need to be that way. Why do we let the world tell us what fathers are like? Why don't we let God tell us what fathers should be like? 
Karl Barth put it this way. He said, all human fatherhood is derivative from our original father in heaven with the first family of whom we are children. In other words, God sets the model by which earthly fathers should be evaluated. It is not earthly fathers set the model by which we think about God. That's bass backwards. We got it wrong. Or as James Bryan Smith puts it, why don't we let the one who knew God best, his father, tell us what the father's like? Why don't we let the only son tell us? What does Jesus say about this father? What narrative is he living out of? Well, a few things come to mind. The first is this, that the father is good. Good. The father's for us. The father is good. One day they said to Jesus, good teacher. And he said, why do you call me good? There's no one good but God, the father. God is good. The father's good. The second thing is the father's loving. Jesus When Jesus prayed to the Father, often called the Father, not only Father, which is all the way, not only the Lord's Prayer, but all the way through the Gospel of John and other places. He was also known to use the Aramaic term Abba, which one translation of Abba is Daddy. Daddy. James Bryan Smith translates it, Dear Father. Intimacy and love. That's the relationship we were meant to to have. That's who God is. God, our Father, wants those relationships with us. Doesn't want to keep score, but wants to invite into relationship with a loving Father. And then finally, Jesus revealed that this Father is trustworthy. One day they asked Jesus about the end of the world. And he said, well, about those times, no one knows, not me, Not even the angels, only the Father. And there it's Abba. Only Daddy knows. It's like, look, I'm just playing under the desk. I'm just doing my thing under the desk. And and I'm going to trust that it works out. Because I know the Father intimately and I've experienced the Father as trustworthy. Later in the Garden of Gethsemane, With his very physical life and well-being on the line, he comes to the garden and he says, Abba, Daddy, take this cup from me, but not what I will, but what you will. Because even if it looked like it involved pain and suffering, he knew, he knew the Father, and the Father was trustworthy. Dallas Willard once said this about Jesus. Jesus lived as if the universe was a perfectly safe place in which to exist. He did that. Lived in security when they nailed him on a cross. From a cross, he looks at John, looks at his mother and says, Mother, your son, son, your mother. He's so trusting. He does, even in his own agony, he's able to continue. The Father's mission of helping us live in love and family. We need to radically redefine ourselves, as Brennan Manning says, as the beloved. But I don't think it'll happen till we radically redefine God as our loving Father who intimately desires a relationship with us and works always 
for our good. Scott Hare was sharing that uh, somebody had told him this, that if you go to 1 John 4, you'll find perhaps the most famous description in the Bible of God. And if I say it, you'll know it. Fill in the blank. According to John, God is love. Of course, you know that. And then if you move from John to Paul, this is what Paul says to the Romans. 1 Corinthians 13 says, love is, you could start rambling off, couldn't you? Patient and kind, not envious, not boastful, not jealous, not rude, does not insist on its own way, does not keep records of wrong. By definition, God is love. Love does these things. That's who our Father really is. A couple weeks ago, I uh, ran into, accidentally, the story of Robert Todd Lincoln, also known as Tad. Um, Robert Todd Lincoln, Tad, uh, as a young boy, grew up in the White House. And the stories about him are legion. And uh, he... He lived in the White House uh, with such vibrancy, energy, passion, joy, mischievousness. It was all there. Story is told one day there, there was a long line of soldiers wanting to, and, and other people wanting to see the president. He went to the back of the line. There was a man looking very forlorn, downcast. And he said, Mr., what's wrong? And he said to the little boy, he said, well, I'm hoping to see the president My father has already died. My brother just died in the war. My mother is alone. There's no one to care for her and the family farm. Mystery said, come with me. I can get you to see the president. And took the soldier by the hand through a back way and got him in to the president's office. He was so comfortable in the father's house. Now, truth be told about Tad Lincoln, he also charged people to do that as well. But this is what he said. After April 9th, 1865, his father's death. I am not a president's son. I am only Tad Lincoln now. Little Tad, like other little boys. I am not a president's son anymore. Well, I will try to be a good boy and will hope to go someday to Pa and Brother Willie in heaven. And as you know, from history, the next decade of Robert Todd Lincoln's life was spent in suffering and in confusion and illness and difficulty. There are two things I want you to know. The first is this. In Tad Lincoln, we get a picture of what life is like when you know you have a father. It is free. It is fun. It is secure. It it provides boundaries, but they're wide and spacious. We can live with joy, confidence, even some mischievousness. That's what life is like. When you know God is Father. But the other news and the news that's just as good as this. The difference between us and Tad Lincoln is our Father. Who gives us such freedom to run, to play, to grow, to love, to serve. 
Our Father is not dead. He is very much alive. And we will find that that makes all the difference.